and uh, rejoice in this great king and all his good gifts. Our God, we ask you again this morning, be here with us, attend the service of your word as we have practiced your word in the memorial of the death of your son, as we have sung your word in the truths of our salvation because of Christ, as we have endeavored to fellowship, greeting, and encouraging one another. Now we ask, help us worship by hearing your word. Let it stir our affections and renew us, O Lord God. Would you allow us to behold your face so that seeing you, we might be changed even more into your glory? Would you do your work and speak here. This is what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 17. It is those early days after the ten wonders. The early days after that hasty Passover meal. The early days after the sweeping back of those waters so that they could walk through on dry ground. Followed by the crashing return of the deeps of the Reed Sea that swallowed up the pursuing army of Pharaoh. Yahweh is now training his emancipated people, as we've been talking about the last few times together, from the end of Exodus 15, Vince leading us last week through 16, and now this morning it continues through the beginning of 17. He is training his emancipated people at Mara by the bitter waters, and in the wilderness of sin, you heard last week, as Vince brought to us the camp covered in quail and bread from heaven on the ground as dew in the morning. And now today at Rephidim, there comes a third discipline, a third training of God's brand new nation. And in it we find, as we find throughout the book of Exodus, another revelation of Yahweh's name and his character. Possibly this Revelation found in these few short verses at the beginning of chapter 17. Possibly this one is greater than all that has gone before. Exodus 17, read with me, starting in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? What scripture will argue for us this morning, if you'd like to write it down, it will form the main idea as we see it worked out through several stages. What scripture will argue for us this morning is this, though we blame God, his provision is marvelous. Though we blame God, his provision is marvelous. And what I want you to hang on to, what I'm asking God by his spirit to more fully reveal to my soul and as well encourage and reveal 
to your soul is that within this dynamic, our blaming of God and his marvelous provision in return, is that within this dynamic, you and I will find the greater revelation of God. There are three demonstrations in the drama this morning. The first demonstration is this. Our grumbling is an indictment of the Lord. Our grumbling is an indictment of the Lord. This is what the scripture will demonstrate for us and argue this morning. Vince did an excellent job of walking us through the grumblings of chapter 16 last week, and there we saw the tendency to elaborate, right? And, and when complaining and ranting about our situations, we bring in toxic language. We begin to sensationalize, don't we? Our passage today in Exodus 17 comes to, if you're keeping score at home, a fourth grumbling that's happened just in the last couple of chapters. And it really is the climactic scene of grumbling because the offense of the Israelites before God is here intensified. I want you to notice that. First, notice the Israelites making demands. That's the first way that they intensify their grumbling and ultimately are indicting the Lord. Look at verse 2. There, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. They've moved at this point from complaint to command. Moses, give us what we want. Tell God to give us what, what we must have. This isn't just saying, this is so hard. How will I get by? I can't do it. No, this is coming and requiring of the sovereign God that he give what we know to be best. Their grumbling at this point has become their fixation. We've already seen this kind of a scene, a need, a need for water. We talked about that a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 15. And again, Vince last week did a nice job of talking about the reality in their need for food, that there is a serious problem. It is legitimate. Scripture never invites us to forsake reality. Instead, it invites us to lean into reality and find what he is doing is far bigger than what we tend to see or acknowledge. And so it is going to be here. Is there a problem that the people at this point are short on water? Absolutely. We know, by the way, in the area of Rephidim that there, there is access to water. We also know at this point, and we'll find out, Lord willing, next week, that the Amalekites are in charge of this area at this point. So it's possible that they have kept the people from access to it. Don't know those details, but the need is real. The problem is their grumbling, which is now becoming a pattern, has become their fixation. It becomes what they begin to require of God. It's a good thing we never struggle with that, do we? We've never gotten to the place where we demand what we know we need. What do we tend to do when we're insulted? We never become better lawyers, right? Better judges than we when we have been, we believe, wrongly insulted right? We demand respect. We demand justice, and it becomes a fixation for us. Do you know what they've done to me? We think in our hearts. We demand respect, especially from those we feel that have wronged us. And we can understand, right? You know it in your own hearts, and so do I in mine, when that sense of offense becomes a fixation to where now I'll show them I will manipulate, I will mistreat, I will passive-aggressive, I will do what it takes in order to require, to demand of them this respect. 
that they have robbed me of. There is a right time to confront when there is offense and when there is insult, absolutely. But also there is a lesson so often and we can be quick to neglect that lesson, the lesson of our need to submit to the Lord. Instead, we fixate and then we demand. In so doing, what they have done is refuse to submit to what the Lord's purpose is in this trial, this purpose in his testing. And so by their grumbling, they are indicting the Lord. Second, notice the Israelites not only making demands, but now passing judgment on God's ways. Passing judgment on God's ways. Here it is in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What they do at this point, being led, remember, by the pillar fire cloud every night and every day, going when he goes and staying as long as he stays, every step and every timing of their movement, being led by God himself. And so what does it mean? Why have you brought us here to kill us? It means that they have assessed his leading and they find it wanting. God, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've made a huge mistake here. They assess his provision and they find him negligent. Why don't I have this? I know that I have complained at times and passed judgment on God's ways, although not knowing I was doing so in the moment. I've done it on more than one occasion in uh, complaining about how the Lord has dealt with our children. And I thought, this was a golden opportunity, Lord, for you to do this. Why don't you lead them that way? Only to find at the end of my advice giving <laughs> that the Lord knew best all along. <laughs> but there I was, indicting the Lord, passing judgment on his ways. Third, notice the Israelites not only making demands and passing judgment on God's ways, but questioning his goodness and his presence. Verse 7. Verse 7 ends, they tested the Lord there saying, is the Lord among us or not? What they're saying then, Lord, you're not here and Lord, you're not good. Because surely if you were here, this couldn't be happening. Or Lord, even if you are here, surely there's something wrong because your goodness is broken that I am here at this place. Do you see what it says here at the end of verse 2? Moses speaks, why do you quarrel with me? But then rightly esteeming the situation, understands that the, the ultimate complaint is not against him. Why do you quarrel with me? He follows with, and why do you test the Lord? You see what's happened here in that phrase? Does that sound familiar? Did you hear Vince say that a few times last week? Did you hear it at the end of chapter 15? The Lord led them out to Mara with the bitter water and their need for water to test them. The Lord led them into the wilderness of sin, in the wilderness of sin and, a, and a, a decrease of their food stores to where they began to worry to test them. Ah, but what do we have now that we get to chapter 17? It's not so much that they're testing, that the Lord is testing them, but that they are now testing the Lord. What we have here at this point is an intensification of what's been going on for the last chapter and a half. Have you ever done that? You ever put God to the test? 
C.S. Lewis has a, a great little essay called God in the Dock. Uh, we, don't, we don't use that language. That was English and that was mid 20th century, so ancient. Um, but, but the dock was the place where the witness, I'm sorry, where the uh, defendant sat. The dock was the place at the trial where the person who was being accused sat. So what does it mean, C.S. Lewis's essay, God in the Dock? It is the, the natural response of humanity which wants to, whenever there's a gigantic tragedy in the world, whenever there's some unwelcome news of hardship and brokenness in our lives, whatever it might be, the natural human intense thing to take God, I mean a word, and you probably know what it is, but, and put him as the defendant and, and accuse him. Why do you test the Lord? And then again at the end of seven, because they tested the Lord. Notice that what's been going on up to this point has just led them to it getting worse and worse. Dear friends, where might we be near the end of our lives if we have not at some point been broken enough or humbled to the place of learning that lesson. The Lord is going to test you and me. It's part of the nature of being a follower of Christ, and yet we are prone to put him in the dock and test him. What are you doing? What are you doing? And you know the old adage about growing old. You either grow bitter or you grow sweet, right? When have you been inclined to say to God, are you here or not? See, understand, too, this is, this is different than the psalmists who regularly cry out, where are you, Lord? That's exactly what God wants. It's not to say that we should go to God rejecting reality, pretending a fantasy when we come to pray. need to make sure that I, you know, only speak the fantasy words. No, we come to God bare-souled and saying, this is broken, this is wrong. Lord God, help me. The psalms teach us to cry out like that, but understand, that's a... a, a an ocean of difference. The words, where are you, Lord? Then the words, are you here or not? Right? The Israelites here have not blamed Moses. They have blamed God. And by their grumbling, they have impugned him. Friends, take the opportunity as you've been thinking about it last week and this week. As the Lord is, um, I'm so grateful, just reminding me in my regular temptations to grumble, to come back to him and seize that, to th take that thought captive and say, Lord, what am I saying about you here? Is this a right kind of grumble complaint? I come to your presence and cry out, or is it a wrong kind where I demand and I pass judgment and I question you? Because there is a lifetime of growth that he will give us there in that. Though we blame God, his provision is Marvelous, our text is here to tell us this morning. And first, it is here to tell us our grumbling is an indictment of the Lord. The second demonstration of our text is this. The Lord can answer for himself. The second demonstration of our text is that the Lord can answer for himself. The people have made an indictment. So now there's a, you know, the, the gauntlet's been tossed down. You know, they came up with their glove, you know, pulled off and slapped him across the face. But the Lord can answer for himself. Notice uh, what we have here really is a court scene. Exodus 17, the first seven verses, 
uh, it's a court. Uh, this is Perry Mason happening. There is a trial taking place. You want to see that more clearly? Let me point out a couple of things to you. The, the, the word in verse 2, uh, it, it changes from what we've had in 15 and 16. Yes, it says in this passage that the people grumbled, but in my translation, you'll notice a new word in verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled. The word quarrel is a, world that, uh, is a word uh, that has the idea of striving, and even more so, uh, it's from the Hebrew reeve. It's where we get the idea. Uh, it's a ju judicial term, which means judgment or lawsuit. The people took God to court, is what it says. They quarreled against him. What they're doing is they're making an accusation, and they're saying, you are guilty. Look at us. We're going to die. And did you hear? What was their, their complaint? It's not just, hey, our life is hard. It's like, look, you're going to kill us, and you're going to kill our kids, and you're, you're going to kill our cows. You're going to kill everybody out here. And they have criminal charges, don't they? They have brought him up on charges of murder, three Second half of three, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And on that crime and with their accusation, they have pretty much already prosecuted the case and are now ready to go ahead and pass judgment. And there it is in verse four, they feel that the appropriate judgment is a capital punishment. So Moses cries out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do to these people? A little more, and they will stone me. They would like to stone God, but it's difficult to get the rocks up that high. So they find if they can stone Moses, who leads them, that would be good enough for them. At least justice would be served. So what happens at this point in the court scene? <laughs> you know what's crazy? The Lord acquiesces. All right. You want to go to trial? Then we're doing this. Let's do it. Let's go to court. Because the Lord can answer for himself. And how does he say, okay, come with me. Let's head to the courtroom. Take a look at verse 5. Notice that he's going to go ahead and line up the witnesses. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Let's make this official. Let's get the authorities and let's bring them in. And let's find out who's guilty. Not only that, what else does he tell Moses to take there in five? Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Oh, yeah, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. What is that staff? They know the staff well at this point, don't they? It's the staff that's the symbol of authority, the staff that's the symbol of God's power. It's the, the staff that that will help render verdict, that will bring reckoning. Every time that staff is raised, God's power is exercised. And so the Lord says, um, bring the witnesses, get the authorities, let's make this official, and grab that reckoning staff. Okay, so we're doing this. The Lord can answer for himself, and here he does. Here in Exodus 17, he does answer for himself. And in his good time, he ever will bring every thought, every careless word, the Lord Jesus says in the Gospels, to account. Notice where the 
passage ends here. This is just a demonstration of the verdict and how it's meant to be forever remembered in, in the conscience of the nation. He named the place Massa and Meribah, which if you haven't figured out just by the reading of verse 7, Massa and Meribah mean quarreling and testing. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord. That spot now geographically is known as Massa and Meribah. That is not a super creative name, I'm sorry. But it's incredibly purposeful. Because the Lord says there, you took me to trial and I answered. I can answer for myself. The memorial verdict upon this event is one that will stand as a regular reminder to curb Israel's temptation for ages to come. He will answer. And every time they will remember back on Massa and on Meribah, you know what? They should rightly be humbled. They should rightly be sobered and even somewhat ashamed. This event becomes an epic event in the life of the nation of Israel and even for us New Covenant believers and for the people of God throughout the ages even today. This event is mentioned many times in Scripture and, and with a variety of specific applications. I just want to give you a couple because this is the takeaway as you chew on this this week. This is the encouragement. Three lessons I'll just highlight for you. The first is found in Deuteronomy 6.16. You can just jot those words down. Deuteronomy 6.16. And there it says, don't take Yahweh to court. That's the lesson. When you grumble, what should rise up in your mind as the Spirit then convicts you and goes, hey, 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 consider these words. Consider your heart. Consider your attitude. What are you doing? Deuteronomy 6.16 says this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. By the way, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That sound a little famous to you? Because the Lord Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6, which was the echo of Exodus chapter 17. It is that famous. So when we grumble, make sure we don't put God in the dock. When you grumble, when you struggle, run to the Lord with those struggles. Don't point your finger in his chest. That's just one of the lessons. The second one that comes in Scripture is found in Psalm 95. Psalm 95, you can jot down verses 8 and 9. And the lesson there from Massa and Meribah is don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. By the way, this verse is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Psalm 95, 8 and, 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. Lord God, help me the next time that I find myself complaining or even just grumbling in my attitude to say, oh, Lord, would you seek me out and rescue me from hardening my heart against you? That's the lesson, Psalm 95, 8 and 9. And then 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, right after quoting these exact events, here's the third lesson we could take away from this same passage. Don't crave evil things. That's what Paul does in the New Covenant. Taking this lesson, he said, this was written as an example for you so that you would not crave evil things. I'll just read 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as also they craved. So what a great invitation for us that the Spirit of God has written this for us so that for our time, all time when we find ourselves in such a state, when we are dangerously close of going down a path to our destruction, the Lord has given us ahead of time an encouragement to say, wait, seize on that thought, and stop and ask yourself, are you putting God in the dock? Are you 
you're hardening your heart. Or maybe your complaint is because you're craving after something that he didn't ever intend to give you to begin with. Instead, let, brothers and sisters, your temptation to grumble be your reminder of his gracious and good provision. I had a situation here just about three weeks ago. And uh, the, the second, there, there, was, there was an opportunity that I was expecting. I was never promised, but I was expecting. Sure, of course. Um, and I remember when I got the news that I was not going to get the opportunity. And <laughs> looking back now, it was so obvious and ugly how quickly my heart complained and impugned God and wanted to tell him, surely there's a problem here. Let me advise you about how this really should go down, Lord. The Lord, in his mercy, first came the news, second came the complaint, but by the grace of God, and you've experienced this, the Spirit of God present in me, immediately after the complaint came sickness to my stomach. And it took me a while to process, but I went back to ask about the sickness in my stomach and to find out that it was a pricking of my conscience, and it was the Spirit saying, hey, what are you doing here? And I paused and I thought, what an idiot I am. How presumptuous. Lord God, look at your gracious gifts. So many ways, whether they're opportunities or provision, whether, whether they're protection, which this was one more from myself, or whatever they might be. Putting me back in a healthy, happy, joyful place of dependence. Lord, you are gracious and you have done good to your people. Let your temptations be then the reminder of his gracious and good provision to you. Now, you want irrefutable proof of God's gracious and good provision. Because to this point, Exodus 17 is a pretty rough passage. Rough in the best way. Holding my feet to the fire to say, look, you're headed toward the path of death. Turn and run back to the Lord your salvation. Man, the Lord's doing something awesome. Even more awesome than just that. He has, in Exodus, made it his purpose to make his name known. You want irrefutable proof of God's gracious and good provision? Well, he gave that here to Israel. Though we blame God, his provision is marvelous. Our grumbling is an indictment of the Lord. But the Lord can answer for himself. The third demonstration, then, of our text is this. The Lord chooses to take the penalty upon himself. It's a court scene. We've already learned that. The third demonstration of our text is that the Lord chooses to take the penalty, one he is not guilty of nor deserves. He takes the penalty upon himself. Um, you need to look at this with me. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 10, the opening verses, is the quintessential use of Masa in Meribah in all of Scripture. There are many passages that touch on it, but this is the one that defines for us most clearly and most applicably, especially in our day under this covenant, of exactly what is going on there, okay? 1 Corinthians 10, you there? I want you to read with me. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. What is Paul talking about? Oh, yeah, passed through the sea. Exodus 15, okay? We're in the right spot. Under the cloud seems a little bit of a weird way to say it, but yeah, the pillar fire cloud was there, and they were under it, under its banner, if you will. Verse 2, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
Okay, well, baptized in the cloud and the sea, that seems like some strange language. But yes, the idea of baptism is intrinsically an idea of identification. Israel was not only identified with, they were defined by the presence of God because of the pillar cloud that went before them and led them every single day for 40 years. And they were, in a sense, baptized by going through the waters of the Reed Sea, right? This is what Paul is doing. Uh, verse 3, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Vince did a nice job of bringing out the reality that when God gave manna in chapter 16, it wasn't just physical food. It was a spiritual feeding for their souls because it was to demonstrate or to, to train them to, to be dependent every day. And then on the sixth day to gather double and to never gather more, right? All those pieces. This was a training. It was a spiritual food that fed them. And here we have a spiritual drink that's given them. But now look at what Paul does next. So we're clear. We're in the right context, right? He's talking about Exodus 17. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, verse 4. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Uh... Excuse me? Who, who, what? He's speaking of the Exodus generation here, and Paul says, and the rock is Christ. Paul does something here that I find a little shocking. And, and we read it and we think, well, I mean, he's an apostle. I mean, he can just, he can find stuff in the Bible that I'm like, whatever. I mean, inspired by the Spirit of God, writing from an eternal perspective better even than he knows. He's at times going to be given insights that no one could ever see or know. And we think, well, he's Paul. Well, he's led by the Spirit. I guess, I guess the Spirit can say whatever the Spirit wants about Exodus 17 if he wants to. And if the Spirit says that the rock is Jesus, then I'm good with that, I guess. I know I can't do that. I can't read that stuff and just find things. But the Spirit can. But let's look again. Go back to Exodus 17 now. And let's just see what we see is actually even there already. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. Again, the staff. We know the staff is there because there's going to be the, the rendering of a verdict it is the reminder of God's presence and readiness to act. And in this case, it's an act of judgment. So the, the bringing of the staff is, look, we're going to have a trial, and then there's going to be a sentencing, and then we're going to carry it out. So bring the staff. In fact, in case you're not clear that that's the sense that they're to understand, um, Moses' uh, writing adds in an extra little phrase that we really don't need. Hey, bring the staff with you. And do you think if, if there was a period right there that Moses would have said, the staff, the st which staff? I'm not sure. What, is there a staff? What staff? It's not like Moses doesn't know, but the Lord is highlighting the point, taking your hand, your staff, with which you struck the Nile. What we have here in verse 5 is the reminder that this is the staff that brings the judgment. And a judgment is about to come. So what we have at this point is we have a crime. We have an indictment. 
We've brought witnesses. We're going to have an official gathering. And then we know that afterwards, judgment will be passed. Somebody's going to get whacked, is what you know, by the end of verse 5. But who? Now look again. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water will come out of it that the people may drink. Do you get it if you know Christ in what he said in 1 Corinthians 10? Somehow Yahweh tells Moses he will be identified with the rock. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. I don't know if if the pillar cloud, if the fire cloud came and its manifestation rested upon the rock. I don't know. I don't know if there was some other... um, manifestation of God's presence here at this point with the rock. Maybe there was none. Maybe it was invisible. Maybe it was something that Moses could see but nobody else. I don't know. But Moses knew. And in time, we know the elders are going to know and the entire nation is going to know. So if it was invisible in time, if not at the event, at least shortly afterwards, they're going to know the rock is a manifestation of God in his very presence. And by the way, the Lord often associated himself with rocks, with the rock in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock. His work is perfect. Or later on in Deuteronomy 32, back in in verse 15, after rehearsing the history of the nation of Israel, and even these very events events right afterwards, it says, and Israel forsook God, and they scorned the rock of their salvation. Who is the rock? The rock is Yahweh. That's what he was. And, And my contention to you that what the passage is arguing, and that if not at least that if, if not the Exodus generation, at the very least, the Deuteronomy generation would have known for certain is that Yahweh was the rock. So what's the point? Is Paul playing fast and loose with Scripture? It's right there, isn't it? It was right there even in the Exodus generation. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Water will come out of it that the people may drink. This is a shocking turn of events. The people have said, you've committed murder. We indict you. We bring you to trial. Yahweh says, great, let's go do it. Let's bring the witnesses and all the evidence, and let's pass some judgment. And they march out to a place there by Horeb, the mountain of God. And there at Horeb, do you know what God does? He says, let the penalty fall on me. That's the end of the trial. That's the end of the judgment. It's the end of the sentencing, isn't it? The Lord chooses to take the penalty upon himself. This, dear friends, I would argue with you, is the greater lesson. It's the greater revelation for the nation of Israel through all of this training through all that he has done through the Exodus. This is a climactic, grumbling scene, and it is fitting. I believe that at this point, the Lord brings a climactic revelation of himself. You tell me, which is the greater revelation of God? Is it his glory in striking the Nile so that it turned to blood? Or is the greater revelation of God his glory in receiving the stroke so that he can refresh his little ones? Tell me, which is the greater revelation of God? 
his glory in commanding hordes of insects for the mockery of the gods of Egypt. That is a glorious revelation. Or is it more glorious that he would endure the indictment of his people and then choose to bear the shame himself for their mockery, which is the greater revelation? Which is greater, his glory in taking Pharaoh to task or his glory in taking the nails in his flesh? This is the greater revelation right there for the Exodus generation. This is the contention of the passage for that generation to know. I will make a name for myself. I will make my name known. And he has done it time and time again through glorious, powerful, wondrous works. But now can you also see chapters 15 and 16 and 17, the tenderness of his provision, each step of the way to train them that I know and I'm here and I am working and no, no matter how bad it gets, even if you grumble to the point of poking your finger in my chest, yet I will show you once more and even further the greater revelation of who I am. What a great God we serve. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we come to you this morning grateful to be your people and rejoicing that you know our souls even better than we know ourselves. Oh, Lord God, I confess I blame you and contend with you. Lord, we confess we blame you and we indict you, and yet your provision is marvelous. It was a marvel, O oh Lord, that Christ would become a man. It was a marvel that he would be afflicted and insulted by evil men. It was a marvel that he would become my sin. And then it was a marvel that he would allow the stroke to fall upon himself. You, Lord, are marvel in your mercy and glorious in the name that you have made as the God who delivers his people by his own suffering. Lord, when we grumble this week, would you, in your kindness and in your rescuing mercies, remind us of the rock that was stricken. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And all the people of God said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.